This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everybody to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am just one of the hosts here my name is matthew rushing and i've got two intrepid incredible and nay even incomparable men sitting here with me that's right the first the one the only Dan Gunther. Hello. How's it going today, Matt? You know what? N- nothing exciting has happened. It's been um, really uneventful, so, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. Today has been completely normal. as usual, uh, as far as I can tell. Pretty much. So, we are recording this after Election Day, everyone. So, uh, 2016, for those listening in the future. Uh, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you? The 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 amazing the Batman closed the Bruce Gibson tonight. I'm Batman. <laughs> yes. You know I have a neighbor that calls me Master Bruce because of Batman. Nice. So every time I'm walking the neighborhood, I hear Master Bruce. Just saying, I am the Batman. Your life is starting to sound like a, a chapter from the Lego Batman film. <laughs> Sounds like something that would happen in the Lego Batman movie. I, I'm actually starting yeah. to to wonder. Like, you do a lot of traveling. You do a lot of. You have this jet set lifestyle. You have someone near your home that calls you Master Bruce. I think you're. I don't think you're kidding. I'm. I'm. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're they're big. They're big Batman fans. They're big DC fans. They have a whole basement filled with all kinds of action figures and and, and comics. So. But I think you might actually be Batman. I'm calling so it here. So that's the reason you had that English butler when I was visiting <laughs> you. Hmm. That's what. Yeah, I have an English yeah, butler. That's making so much more sense. That's yeah. true. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, as you can tell, tonight is going to be off the wall awesome. We've got some fun news to talk about here this evening. And coming up to a comic store near you, we are going to get him a... We are going to be getting a brand new comic by IDW, Star Trek TNG Aliens crossover. Guys, what do you think about this one? I have to say, personally, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, I'm I'm a bit of a bad sci-fi fan. I finally watched Alien and Aliens just this last year, actually. So Off the show. 
Yeah. Just off the no, show. No, I, I, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that just kind of slipped through the cracks for me and I hadn't watched it. And for some reason, um, just had never gotten around to it. And then finally had a friend like basically strap me down and say, you have to watch this if you call yourself a sci-fi fan. So, oh, okay. And yeah, I love the films and uh, I'm pretty excited to see what they can do here. You know, this has the potential, again, if they don't take it too seriously and just make it a really fun, really cool crossover, uh, I think it has the p- potential to be really entertaining. Yes. Um, you know, I've mentioned it before. I'm not a big fan of crossovers, but this one could be actually interesting. I would prefer if 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 we were going to do a crossover with aliens, I'd rather it be Voyager with aliens because I'd love to see Janeway and Ripley go at it on the aliens together. I think that would be totally yes, awesome, just like she did in Microcosm. Yes. Yeah, Janeway in a tank top with a big gun. Absolutely, hell yeah! Yep. <laughs> oh man, that'd be awesome. I completely agree with you. Although maybe. We'll get Troy in a tank top with Crusher in a tank top too, so I'm okay with that. You know, um, I I don't I I just don't know. Uh, this is one of those crossovers where it could be great, or it could turn out to be Planet of the Apes again. So uh, hopefully, it's more on the Green Lantern side that we've had, which I really enjoyed. So uh, I think you know what's interesting to me is that Aliens and TNG. It almost feels like a Borgish type thing that they're facing. Obviously with the Borg having a lot of inspiration from the designs that we got with uh, Geiger and all, just really influenced theirs. Obviously Aliens was too. So uh, it, this could be fantastic. So I'll cross my fingers, it's going to be starting there in spring of 2017. That's right, 2017, around the corner. I can't believe it. So next on the list, uh, guys, uh Boldly Go 2 came out as we're continuing that series. So um, we'll probably get into a little bit of spoilers here for anybody who's listening. What were your thoughts? Uh, Did it continue to be as good as both of you had thought the first issue was? What what were your uh, impressions? Well, I I hate to say it with this one. You know, again, I'm still kind of curious to see where the story goes from here. But as for this issue... It really felt like a bit of a paint by numbers Borg outing. You know, they the the Borg have destroyed the USS Concord. Enterprise rescued Sulu in the last uh, Endeavor, I think it is, because the Enterprise. Oh, sorry, well, you're right. Yeah, the Endeavor, uh, Kirk and the Endeavor rescued Sulu, and, uh, and they give chase to this Borg ship. Now, there's some, there's some, and and they're called out definitely as the Borg. So it's definitely the Borg we're dealing with here. And uh, there's some interesting continuity stuff. They follow the Borg ship using a a magnetic resonance trace, which is directly from TNG. That's that's how they identified the Borg footprint in the best of both worlds. So, you know, they know their trek, the writers here, and, and they're using some good continuity. But, you know, if you think about it, not a lot happens in this issue. They, they, follow the Borg. They come across, I think it's Captain Terrell assimilated beams over and tells them, you know, not to interfere and then leaves for some reason without assimilating and capturing the Endeavor, but okay. Um, and uh, we get a little bit of Spock and Uhura on New Vulcan deciding to set off 
to investigate themselves. And that's all that happens. You know, it doesn't really move the plot forward. We just see a bit of Borg stuff happening. Eh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sold yet. Eh, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I kind of like this one and maybe not as much as the first issue, but, uh, I, what I liked about this, besides the fact that uh, Dame Judy Dench makes a appearance in this issue. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yep. <laughs> on Vulcan, as a Vulcan. But what I really liked was that, yes, we got the Borg, which I was not really too keen on. But what I liked about it is there was a reason that the Borg were there in this universe, in the Kelvin timeline. I didn't want the Borg to just show up just to show up. But there's some connection hinted at here in the fact that the Borg is going towards where the Kelvin was destroyed and now going towards Romulus. And I th- it makes me realize that there's something in the Star Trek 08. Wait, was it 08 or 09? It was 09. 09. There was something in the Star Trek 09 movie that event at the beginning caused the Borg to come to the Alpha Quadrant earlier than it did in the Prime Timeline. So that intrigues me. That that that's something that I like. I'm I'm honestly pretty sure I'm I'm like ninety eight percent sure they're after Red Matter. Hmm. That's my guess. Is is why they would be going to Romulus. Yeah. Uh, I I think it's kind of cool the idea that maybe the Kelvin timeline is actually responsible. I mean, the, the Kelvin, everything that happens in 09, because we know that the ship that Nero has, from the comics at least, was Borg enhanced mm-hmm. with Borg technology, so that maybe somehow that's responsible for bringing Borg to this universe in the first place. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Although. You also get in this episode uh, the Vulcans talking about how they had run into something earlier, I think maybe a hundred years ago, if I'm remembering correctly. So I it is it's interesting, but I I'm with you, Dan. This is exactly what I was afraid of. It just feels like a very rote Borg story. Mm. Yeah, nothing really exciting to set it apart. It just kind of gets us to the next chapter, I guess. Well, uh, I'll be interested. I'm like you, Dan. I'm hoping this will get good. I'm hoping they'll do something exciting. So we'll see what happens in issue three. But we got some great book sales happening. Uh, You know, StarTrekBooks.com does a wonderful sale on different books throughout the Star Trek series. And this month, we've got some great stuff out there for $1.99 each till December 6th here in 2016. Uh, Goodness, Bruce, tell everybody what uh, they could pick up this week. Okay, so each of these books is $1.99. So you have The Eugenic Wars. There's three books by Greg Cox. Each one of those is at that $1.99 price point. Then we have the novelization to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which I highly recommend if you haven't read that because there's some extra scenes and uh, real in-depth information in there that you don't see in the movie. So that's a definite read. And then there's the three-book series Voyager of the Dark Matters series by Christy Golden. And each one of those is $1.99. And I recommend that one, too. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I never got the third book, and I had to buy it on eBay for, like, several 
not several hundred, but for, for a lot of money. <laughs> wow. It was a lot of money. I'm serious, though. I mean, I did find one copy out there that was like $100. I was like, seriously? And now that it's an ebook format, I could have done that. But regardless, and then the entropy effect from um, Vonda McIntyre. This is a real old one. This is one of the original pocketbook publications. It was actually book two when pocketbook got the license to do um, the Star Trek line. So this was like from the early 80s, right after, shortly after the mission picture. And that's a winner too. So that's $1.99. And we also have Broken Bow, the pilot of Enterprise. This is the novelization of that by Diane Carey. And that one I have not read, but I've heard enough about it that I bought it today and I'm going to read it. Ooh, excellent. I've heard a lot of interesting stories about that novelization and how it plays out. So I'm curious to see uh, what you think of it. I haven't read it myself yet either. Yeah, Trip so. dies real early. So in in that one, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, this is great. I love that they do this. Um, it enables me to pick up some books that I might not have gotten before, ebook wise, and and really inexpensively. So it's so worth checking out when they do these sales. StarTrekBooks.com, great place to go. So make sure if you don't have these books, worth picking up. Now, of course, you can find us everywhere. We're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We're a featured provider there. You know, it has been a while since we have had some star ratings and reviews, and we would love to keep the show growing. Best way to do that is to give us a star rating and review because that helps other people find us when they're searching in iTunes for podcasts. So please do that, and we'll definitely give you a shout-out on the show if you do. Bruce, we're on Twitter and Facebook. Tell everybody where you can find us there. Yes, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, and on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash TrekFM. And you can also find us in the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, that's when you, what you want to type into the search field in the Facebook, or you can go to our website at trek.fm, I mean at trek.fm, and click discussion on the menu bar, and you can find our discussion group on Facebook through that link in the Babel Conference, where we're talking about Star Trek all the time. And Dan, lastly, and but not least, you can find us on Goodreads, and that's a great place for people to go for our books and comics podcast because we got some amazing stuff over there. Absolutely, Matthew. Yeah, on goodreads.com, just search for Literary Treks. You'll find our group there. In that group, we've got bookshelves containing all of the books that we've read in past episodes. So if you want to get caught up on old episodes, you can follow along there. We've also got a bookshelf featuring books coming up in future episodes. So if you'd like to get a head start on what we'll be talking about in the coming weeks, check that out. And of course, there are message boards and discussions happening about all the books and comics. Go ahead and talk about anything to do with Star Trek literature that you want. There are always great discussions happening there. Guys, uh, with so much amazing stuff happening out there, uh, we don't have any more news. I think it's time. Uh, we've got a great book to talk about. Let's jump into the feature. We're talking tonight, I'm so excited, we're back with the Prey trilogy that John Jackson Miller has been doing. And I just have to say right up front, this series is jam-packed. And we were talking about this on the other side of the page. It is jam-packed with plot. There is so much going on. 
in this series. So many twists and turns and weaves. And I mean, I I love it, but I also have a hard time keeping up with everything that's going on because it really is. I feel like John Jackson Miller is just pouring everything he has into this series. And to me, that's making it a spectacular read specifically here with the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. It definitely is packed with jam. Absolutely. There is so much happening in this book. It feels a lot like uh, we've talked about Christopher L. Bennett's Rise of the Federation series. It's kind of like that. There's different ships doing different things, all sorts of things going on, different plots, different, uh, you know, people being double-crossed and triple-crossed. It's it's absolutely jammed to the max with plot here uh makes for a really dense read but a really interesting read too because there's just so much going on well and there's a pace to it that i think is a fast read so i never felt like i'll put this down for a while or i'm really confused because there's so much going on maybe i should take a break and, and and come back to this later i never felt like that i was actually going through it fairly quickly so i like the pace and there was a lot of scenes later in the book with certain battles and certain things that are going on where it's maybe just two or three paragraphs and boom switch to another event that's happening at that time and back again or whatever it was almost like quick takes in in a film it almost had a film-like mm-hmm. quality at times when i was reading it uh no you're, you're you're exactly right this this does feel like a three-part trilogy for the tng generation like i it, it's just it's got all the characters it's got the great cast there's so much going on uh you know i'm really looking forward to the third book where i know that as john told us that aventine shows up so i can't wait for that mm-hmm. to see how that part comes out i i'm really loving it the uh, you know i the only thing i wish is for more crusher so yeah. you, you know she kind of had that one scene and, and then mm-hmm. disappeared. <laughs> yeah, we need more crushing. And, <laughs> That's and just books. generally That's, a good rule. Yeah. I, yeah. That I, didn't even occur to me. <laughs> well, of course it's Wait, didn't. are you talking you don't Wesley? Love Beverly Crusher like you're I You're talking do, Wesley. So. That's what you're saying, right? You said Crusher. No, right? not Wesley Crusher. <laughs> Beverly Crusher Picard. Beverly Crusher. She hyphenates, okay? Yes, but uh, well, we, do get, <laughs> we do get the Enterprise E. We get the Titan crew. But we also get the Excelsior crew. So you're getting some Sulu and Rand and Tuvok in there. So that's fun, too. Yeah, that was a nice little addition. Kind of, again, like in the first book, we snap back to an earlier period, a century earlier, essentially, and see just another little piece of this puzzle coming together as to how Korg assembled this massive... uh, trick that he's been playing here and it's it's really good i like the way that's revealed because i was wondering by the time we snap back there like how did he get involved with these guys how does he you know this buxtus cross guy and his magic ship of illusion you know how how did all that come together and we get that backstory at the perfect point in the novel so i thought that was a really interesting way to do that that was really interesting because uh, the way that this long con plays out, like I, I like that John is going back to tell the story about how that happened. I, I think it makes it fascinating and it gives us the opportunity to jump back in time with Enterprise A and then now with 
the Excelsior. I think that's great in, in the way that it's playing together. And, you know, Star Trek also has the small universe syndrome, but I, what I think about the storyline is the way it's making it work, that all of these characters are connected somehow, but they just didn't realize it. You know, like, they, they it's not as if everybody's cognizant of it, and so when they find out, it's like that. Oh, my God, I cannot believe that that was that and that, and you know, they're able to put those pe- puzzle pieces together for them. Selves, and I think that makes for a really interesting storyline. And God, I don't know how John kept this, and I can't wait to ask him when we talk to him about the series, how he kept all this straight. Because there are so many moving pieces in this story. It's insane. I mean, John must have his own, you know, magic ship of, you know, illusion because... Goodness, there's it, it really is. It's incredible the amount of work and care that's gone into crafting this plot and having all these pieces fit together. Yeah, definitely. There's it does. I, I, I don't want to use the word convoluted because that has kind of a negative connotation, but there is so much going on. You almost picture that wall of evidence that you know you see in movies with strings connecting various things. That's what this feels like. There's just little threads running throughout that, you know, sometimes you get little hints of, but don't necessarily pick up on. And then when something big is revealed later in the novel, all of those little clues were there for you to see, and you didn't necessarily know what they meant. And reading this, I felt like John Jackson Miller was really a master of setting this up so that it made sense, even big plot twists that you think would be, well, that's just crazy. But no, he sets everything up very masterfully, just like he's his own Buxtus Cross master of illusion. <laughs> right, because Buxtus Cross is, yeah, of illusion and uh, and a storyteller, and just like John Jackson Miller is. So he must have some holographic program that he goes around disguising himself as and as different characters from Star Trek. That's that's probably where he got the idea for the Cross character. Well, and, and that's really interesting because, you know, with Cross, uh, we, we really learn a lot about the character. And the interesting thing here was that, you know, he was a trained counselor who has found out and and this was the really creepy thing because we don't get this a lot in Star Trek, but it happens every once in a while. A character who murders somebody and then finds out that they like murder. Like, basically, this guy is a creepy storytelling serial killer. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, he reminded, and I haven't watched a lot of this series, but uh, this the television series Hannibal, uh, how Hannibal is, you know, this... Um, psychologist this counselor and uh you know buxtus cross doesn't eat people but he's studying them and 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 in this almost very sociopathic way where he's just kind of disconnected and like you say he murders and discovers that he likes it and yeah it's not something we see a lot in star trek it's a very sociopathic very uh scary personality type and uh He's he's at the same time kind of disarming and a little bit charming and very off-putting. Like it's it's this weird juxtaposition. Yeah, this guy is a crazy nut job. And I 
I like to call him cross-dresser because he does like to take on the characteristics and pretend he's different characters uh, besides himself. He is an actor, and I don't say that as meaning he is acting just these illusions, but he is a theater actor. He has performed on stage, so he's treating his life as if it is a stage. So when they're trying to get uh, to take over ships or, or go to some settlement to try to gain some treasures. He wants to play some kind of character. And even to the point of perfection that when they captured Kalis, the clone of Kalis in the first book, he wanted to keep Kalis alive in prison as long as he can. So he could continue to study him and study how he talks and his inflections in his, in his speech patterns and, and his movement. And he has to get that character perfect. He, he is such the, the theater actor that has to have perfection in his performances. This guy is so nuts that he has not only murdered people more than once, but he's done it twice, three times. But it's not like he just goes in and shoots them or, or stabs them. He causes something to happen to them that ends up them getting killed because of you know jealousy that he has of one guy to this one woman and so on and so forth. But now he's he's been caught. He's imprisoned by Starfleet. And then a Borg shows up. And even to the point that he realized that, I think he realizes it's not really even a real Borg because he can tell the performance isn't quite right. So, and we do find out that this is really, this is an illusion of a Borg. And he joins this team of, of people that are on the ship, the Blackstone, that are going to, you know, try to, they're always finding ways to get treasure. And this comes from the Ardra episode from The Next Generation, that, that same uh, technology and group of, of portraying these different characters with holographic illusions. Once, twice, three times a murderer. That's really what it takes. Uh, so uh, this this whole thing was fascinating to me. Uh, the way that this the storyline of this whole this organization called the Circle that they get off on becoming part of the mythology of other planets by conning them with the best most elaborate con that creates in that culture a story that continues forever and that's the way in which they find immortality. They love showing off and tricking people. And that just was fascinating. It, to me, it, what I, I really actually like about this series is that it is, in the way that Deep Space Nine did, it's expanding what we think of as Star Trek. Because honestly... Star Trek is such a stark experience sometimes, you know, like, but this adds such dimension to the galaxy. It makes it so much more interesting and rich and full and real that there, you know, would be this kind of people out there that would want to do these kind of things. You know, Star Trek, unfortunately, for the most part, unless it's Deep Space Nine, shows people doing all the same things and everybody follows all the same rules and, every, and you know, and this just, just, just 
it's fun. It's so much fun to watch how this plays out. And at the same time, for some reason, it still seems to fit within, you know, the Star Trek type mythos. Yeah, even just within the context of this story, like what we get as the outline of what the Prey trilogy is, you know, you figure it's something we've kind of seen before, like a big epic Klingon adventure where heroes are made and enemies are fought and honor is served and that sort of thing. And then right in the middle of it, you get this intergalactic con man who's using smoke and mirrors and and has playing cards and makes references to Houdini and, and uh, you know, all this really kind of esoteric, really off-the-wall stuff that really just adds a splash of color to this story. And it's not at all what I was, what I was expecting uh, when I started reading the trilogy. But yeah, like you say, Matthew, it's very welcome. It's a, it, it really expands the horizons of this story and the Star Trek universe, like you say. I'm not one to get excited about a Klingon book because I do feel like Klingon stories are so much about honor and and such. But this one is just like you're saying, there's the smoke and mirrors, there's different kinds of characters. It's the, the, the Klingons are being played uh, within themselves and, and with outsiders uh, being involved. So it, there's a lot going on, so it's definitely kept my interest, and it's not just about Klingon honor or showing us a different society of the Klingons. This is really more intriguing to me than that type of story. Well, and, and I think that that's the thing that's become really fascinating to me is watching the discommendated and the way in which uh, this whole segment of, you know, this shunned away population of Klingons, you know, who have no honor, who are not considered uh, Klingons anymore, and the way in which they're dealt with. And, and to me, it's been fascinating because, you know, they have had everything stripped away from them that is Klingon and what we think of as Klingons. And to me, it's been so fascinating to see uh, a really Valandris, and she's been like uh, the key character, I think, to see this happen in the way in which religious faith. You know, the Klingons have a very strange religion uh, because they killed their own gods, uh, but they still have this religious belief, and the way in which that religious belief is shaping this person who had never heard it before. But here's the call of the words being spoken, and they have an effect. And what's really cool is to watch that play out in that character and to see how religious conversion happens in people. And it's actually playing out very truthfully that there's something about whatever it is that she's hearing that is speaking deep into the soul of her as a Klingon that she can't explain. It's ineffable. And I think that's really neat to watch that happen in this this character and just in general with this population. You know, that's not something we see a lot of, the idea of like, you know, obviously we saw it with the Bajorans with religious faith, but to actually see somebody kind of follow that and the way in which enlightenment religiously happens for a character, I think is, is really fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, an interesting... Uh tack for the book to take and you know 
something that we see the seeds of this planted very early on with her uh, interest in Worf, of course, in the first book. And we can tell there's something different about her. She's she's a little bit more open to some of these ideas um, than the, a lot of the rest of the unsung. And the unsung to me are very interesting. This is a this is a this part of the story really seems familiar and it's kind of kind of has to do with a bit of this cult of personality around Lord Krug, the you know, the the character of Lord Krug that Buxtus Cross has, has created here. You know, as discommendated Klingons, you know, they're very vulnerable and we always get these charismatic leaders preying on vulnerable populations. Uh, you know, it's something we saw in Germany, of course, in the 30s with Hitler, because Germany had been crushed under war reparations and, and having lost World War One. you know, a charismatic leader rose up and, and was able to garner a lot of support by pointing at scapegoats. And, you know, a lot of time cults will prey on vulnerable people, maybe new arrivals to a city because they're alone and cut off and maybe feeling very vulnerable themselves and that's totally what they've done with the unsung here they've collected the you know the great unwashed the discommendated the castaway who have no honor left so you know somebody charismatic's going to come along and sway them and then of course once they've accomplished their goals is going to cast them aside and it's interesting we see that play out here and with you know the one character kind of bucking that trend and and following this conversion path that you're talking about and and coming to realize you know the truth of the words of the Kesa of of the the Klingon art of war the quesadilla something like that cuz i love a good quesadilla <laughs> uh quesadilla as we call them down in texas um no, I I think you're absolutely right, and that's what makes it fascinating. Because at the very end of the book, that revelation, and I, I mean that in all biblical sense, basically for Klingons, comes to fruition for them uh, with the return of a, a character that I, we're gonna spoil it here. Just okay, spoilers, big time warning. Kalos coming back, and you know the, the clone that they thought was dead isn't dead, and so I'm I cannot wait to see how that plays out. I think it's just going to be fascinating, though. So I'm really interested to see this kind of continuation because it almost seems like to me, in in some ways, that this story is going to play out as a maybe a Klingon reformation, but as a very good thing for them. And because on the other side, you have Korg who is creating and crafting a false narrative just like Palpatine was uh, in, in Star Wars, trying to pull all the strings to create a war, to create a, a way for him to return Klingons to what he thinks of as the glory days. Make Kronos great again. That's, that's his cry. Like I mean, that really is. That, that's what he said. In in so many words, he even says to Riker, you know, fires tend to spread. Uh, and, and that's his goal is to stoke the fires of old Klingon exceptionalism and say, no, we should be the ones who lead. Even though it's funny because Klingons do lead the Alpha Quadrant with the Federation. I mean, they're in partnership, but they're the major powers. 
So it's it's not as though, you know, they're being led around like a dog on a leash. You know, I think that's just what makes this so interesting is the way in which he's using everything. The media, I mean, it is... John Jackson Miller's really tapping into something here in, in the way in uh, which our modern society works to, to see it played out here. And it's not just... Again, don't hear when we say make Cronus great again, we're not just saying it's a one for one with something like Donald Trump or anything like that. It it's it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So it's inco- it's encapsulating a lot that's happening in our world, not just such a small thing. Yeah. And I mean, that's so much of what, you know, charismatic leaders who take advantage of of these situations do is, you know, a lot of times maybe the situation is really bad. But even if it's not, they will paint the picture of everything is horrible. This is horrible. We're in the worst position ever. But I can I can change that. You know, follow me and, and I can change that. And, you know, we see that with Krug, in quotes, and uh, and with Korg as well. And one thing that just really leapt out to me was, you know, the Klingon captain that captures Worf doesn't, you know, tells Worf, he's, yeah, no, okay, yeah, sure, this guy might not be Krug, but it doesn't matter. He's saying the right things, you know. He's, maybe he's not who he claims to be, and he's a fake, but it doesn't matter. He's telling it like it is. He's saying the right things. He's, he's, you know, he's got me. And it's just, it's amazing how self-deluded this person is to be following somebody that he knows is not real, but follows him anyway, because he has nothing else. Yeah. See, he's Korg is just like cross and that they're playing a part. They're playing, they're making illusions and Korg is creating these illusions without necessarily specifically pointing at them and saying, Hey everybody, you know, this is going to happen and look, it happened. I told you so. So he's, he's creating events to occur so that it looks favorable on him as if he needs to step up and correct things and be in power. And so everybody's falling into this place. He's, he's controlling the situations like they're puppets. He's doing that with the Federation. And even though they get along with the Federation and they're two major powers to him, what makes the Klingons powerful is not to be in partner with the Federation, but to stand on their own and make sure that they keep their realm of space and no one else is evading into it. And the Federation isn't taking over territories around it, that this is who they are. This is what makes them powerful. Let's go back to the old days of Klingon society when we were stronger, as opposed to, being so diplomatic and and worrying about other people he feels like they're getting soft and so he's playing them just like cross is is playing others in in this whole adventure and these two are are made for each other because they both think in that same manner so you're saying they're mfeo yes okay okay uh no you're exactly right i he just has these delusions of grandeur that are based on a completely old way of thinking that no longer is valid for the Klingon Empire to sustain itself. Because, I mean, think about it. If the Klingon Empire just goes on a, a annexing rampage, it, the galaxy's not going to have that. 
And even if they try to find a way to insert themselves in the Typhon Pact to become the leaders there, again, I don't think that's going to work out well for them. So it really is this, I, I just feel this delusions of grandeur of like, yeah, I can rewrite the galaxy to be the way I want it to be. And that was the thing that was the most interesting to me here is that there's a there's a part in the story here where Zokar, who is one of the unsung, says that, um, I don't care if he's a changeling, talking about Krug, the quote-unquote Krug. Dink, dink. He's saying the right things, things people like me have never heard. The idea that the... the it doesn't matter if it's true or not. Like, I don't care about the truth. I just care about that it sounds good to me. That's not all that hard to believe in a world, I mean, that which we live, that mm-hmm. doesn't believe that there is any absolute truth. So when you all make your own truth, it doesn't matter. Like, this is the problem with having a, a belief that there's nothing that's absolute because, oh, I mean, it's true for him. So what makes that wrong? I mean, you know, so it, I loved it. I thought that was great. It is just such a great line uh, in the book. He doesn't care. He It just feels good. You know, and when we live by what feels good, things go horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's something very compelling to a lot of people about being in a large crowd chanting and 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 feeling like you belong. I mean, you know, political movements and cults and and various religions over centuries have used that. And that's exactly what's happening here is, you know, like he says, it doesn't matter. It makes me feel good, you know, where to stand next to brothers and sisters and and chant, you know, Krug, you know, (laughs) he's going to save us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But is he? No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and we see it. I mean, I I think about how many, and I again, I'm putting in air quotes, protests that we see. Like people out there protesting, but they don't even know what they're protesting. It just feels good to vent anger. There is this feeling and this sense of emotionalism and anger or whatever, and you don't know how to express it. It, You know, that's uh that's a really interesting thing to watch happen here for these discommendated who feel so utterly powerless they don't know how to ha- ha- you know handle it and so they're able to be played and you know that's a danger because it happens to everybody on every side of every political spectrum it's it's not just a it's not just a left or right thing because it's 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 happened in communist russia uh and it's happened in fascist germany so you know uh whichever side of the spectrum you want to choose it's 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 been seen to be a bad thing when we take advantage of those or and these people have been made to be less than klingon they've had their name stripped away and their honor stripped away They've been given a new name so that we can discount them and then we can treat them however we want. Like the danger with that Mm -hmm. is just extreme and it happens 
again, it happens on every side of what we see happening in our world today. I don't like that person. That They don't agree with me. That makes them a racist. That makes them a bigot. That makes them a this or a that. And so that way I can treat them badly then because, well, they don't agree with me. But that's because they're a racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saying that about them makes you kind of bigoted, doesn't it? And I just, I love, I love that we're getting so much from this book. John is doing such a great job. And, but on top of it, I just think this is a fantastic adventure. Like, like you said earlier, it's moving so fast and so quick and so much happening. I cannot wait to see where this book kind of comes to a close in the Hall of Heroes and how the, the Alpha Quadrant and the Beta Quadrant probably look different. Um, I, I think John's gotten something really big in store for us. And to me, that's super exciting. Well, I, you were talking about Zokar, who's really an old fart Klingon in this group. But uh, so he wants it to go to the old ways. And of course, the unsung still believe that Krug is around because he's part of the illusion that Cross is doing. And, you know, Zokar goes on saying that Krug is different, that he's got a plan. He says quote, you saw the broadcast he sent. He called us the children the true Kalis deserved. That wasn't just a slam at the people who discommendated us. He's willing to use Kalis and their other symbols to hijack them, to transform them, transform them, to turn them to our ends. We'll remake society our way. Then we're the gods. There's the power that these dishonored Klingons are trying to get. They want to be the gods. And that's just messed up, you know? I I just remember a story about people wanting to be gods and eating a certain fruit, and it didn't turn right. out well. Like, anytime <laughs> you put yourself in, in, in the form of a god, I don't know, it just it just never seems to work out No, well. I mean, and they're yeah. going from nothing. They don't want, they want to go from nothing to being gods, you know? It's just not, well, you know, let's get back in society. Maybe people will accept us. No, we're going to rule the world. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, it feels very familiar. Like, it's a tactic that, you know, cultists have used for ages. And even at the end of this story, you know, maybe they're not all lining up to drink the Kool-Aid and all die, but their leader is going to have them all killed, basically, so, you know, there's a lot of really strange parallels here to what we think of as as cults and, uh, you know, this idea of creating a group of people that are special and better than everyone else uh, who have been shunned by the rest of society. It would it would be incredibly compelling. Like it's 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 a such an easy trap and people keep falling into them. It's a trap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I actually completely agree with you, Dan, because what I love here is the way in which there is this cultist-like behavior where it, it is a Klingon cult uh, and we are twisting everything, you know, and, and that's what's so interesting because there is, again, it, it kind of going back to what we we're talking about with this idea of religious truth reaching uh, th- these discommendated Klingons and finding a way to kind of change them slowly, especially with Valandris and her interactions with Worf or even um, 
And even with Sarkin, who is the, the little girl that has uh, been helping out Worf, which I love that relationship. I'm actually kind of hoping he adopts her uh, at the end. Like, that's my hope for the storyline, uh, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I think that would be That would fantastic. be strange, too, because he killed her father. Yes, yes. But that's the thing is that he is slowly helping her understand Klingon ways and that truth, that that religious truth is beginning to, to seep into her and she's beginning to understand it. And it's changing her slowly too. Because of that, this idea that there is actually some religious truth out there, the twisting of that with the, the Klingon cult that they've created with the unsung, that uh, Cross and Korg have been able to twist and turn and, and dig that knife in and change the the course of them to use them for the their own advantage is i think just utterly fascinating and just gosh i'm I'm really enjoying it i think that this book is just so packed full of great things and so I'm, i'm really enjoying it and there's just i mean there's just amazing stuff happening in this book things i never would have thought of with with star trek like uh the Aphrodite gang of, of uh, Starfleet officers underneath the water, you know, that, that pop out to save them, or uh, the Skagarin, I love him, the, from uh, the, the Titan, They're one of their security guys, I think he's fantastic, the fact that he sits around in the bar and like basically uh, jeans and a denim shirt kind of thing and a handkerchief around his neck you know just like you would in the old west it, it's like is he been playing a lot of west world i know he's the cigar and it's this their thing yeah no, i know i've always liked him he's one of my favorite yeah, new characters he, that uh was it takedown he was introduced in i think i, I think so yeah i think so Ethan, yeah um, i really like that guy <laughs> but I, I this book is just jam-packed full of great stuff so i i mean Woo, we've I feel like we've talked about a lot. <laughs> well, you said about the Aphrodite. That's one of my favorite scenes. I just thought that was so mm-hmm. cool because the the sentry were killed and the unsung are are impersonating them. They they filled their place. And so this conference is going on or is about to go on and and the unsung are about to attack or blow up the conference. And it remi- and the chaos that starts to come about and then Starfleet's there and they find a bomb in the in the spirits forge fortress and and there's just a lot of chaos going chaos going on it reminded me of that ending scene in in the undiscovered country i know john jackson miller even referred to that movie as being kind of an inspiration uh to these books but then the aphrodite thing what, what cracks me up is that i mean i thought it was cool that all of a sudden these security officers just you know as Riker just taps his badge and says aphrodite and these officers just come out of the water to attack the uh the unsung but what's really funny to me is also that you know aphrodite is um she was born when chronos hey that name sounds familiar when chronos (laughs) cut off uranus's genitals i never thought i would say uranus and genitals in the same sentence and and threw the genitals into the sea, and Aphrodite rose from the sea. And I thought, okay, why did John go with that? Because 
because of Kronos and the connection with <laughs> Kronos and, and Klingons. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think Riker just likes his mythology. Yeah. yeah, he loves Greek mythology. That's my guess. <laughs> no, I I'm right there with you, Bruce. I Deanna think Troy's gonna sit down with him though, and 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 you know really unpack that. Um, well, I've got <laughs> we some questions talk about that. <laughs> yeah, um, Riker, what have you been researching in the Hollow Deck? <laughs> I think it's this is the thing to me is that John has a way of creating things in the Star Trek universe that I don't think a lot of people have thought of before. But he uses all the technologies just in ways that like, oh, well, we could do this. He's, it's almost that, that out-of-the-box thinking. Like, Star Trek became so... I don't know what the word is. It, it just became so boxed in, really, mm. by what... Well, that's just the way we've always done it, you know. And specifically with the novels or comic book, you have so much freedom to use these technologies in all the ways you actually could use these technologies. And I like that John does that in his books. It makes it seem like un-Star trek at first, I think. But then the more you think about it, like, oh no, it totally makes sense that this could happen in Star Trek. I love that he kind of covers his butt a little bit too, because there's the one moment where they discover they can beam onto the unsung ships. And uh, I think Picard says something along the lines of, oh, the ability to beam onto a cloaked ship, that's a tactical game changer. And Jordy's like, ah, it'll only work on the unsung ship because of this. Right. Picard's like, oh, well, okay then. <laughs> it's like, this, unlike Voyager, where they would bring in a bunch of technology and then just ignore it forever, John actually built in a reason why this is just a one-off thing. <laughs> yeah, this is a one-time only thing, so don't get excited. Uh, so, no, I, I'm, oh gosh, I'm right there with you guys. I think I think at this point, we should probably uh, go to the ratings. There's still so much more in this book that we haven't covered, so don't feel like if you listen to the show that you've heard everything. I mean, we're just barely scratching the surface, and that's how much has happened in this two book series so far got the third one coming out can't wait and we'll talk to john about it there in december uh dan I, what's your rating for this one well i i really liked this one uh like you said it's just full of a huge amount of stuff um before i get to that i just wanted to ask a very important question if like you suggest Worf adopts the klingon girl sarkin do you think she'll become a hugely important member of his family and we'll see her just as much as we see Jeremy Astor? Let's hope so. No. <laughs> uh, I, I actually think that Worf, I, if they did that uh, as a character story, I actually think we might see Worf almost trying to find a way to redeem himself from the mistakes he made with Alexander. Mm, that Yeah, uh, that could and, be a really interesting story for sure. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it would be really interesting to watch the storyline. You know, he even said in the story that, you know, he loves his son very much and he doesn't get to see him as often as he would like. You know, obviously, you know, Alexander is the Federation ambassador, so... And the cat's in the cradle with the silver spoon. The Klingon's in the cradle with the silver spoon. Uh, so, you know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I think that would be a really fascinating story to tell with Worf kind of be 
single dad, you know, who adopts someone. I mean, he, you know, obviously Jan Z is gone. Um, the last girlfriend he had, David Mack killed off too. So, uh, (laughs) but it would be really interesting to see him find a way to, and he's doing what, what was great about that is he's doing such a great job with her, like his connection with her and everything. I just, I love the way that John's writing it. So I really want more of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this novel, I, I'm really enjoying it. It's, uh, a lot of second books kind of suffer from the middle book syndrome. Uh, this one, I feel like, doesn't do that. It has a very satisfying narrative that, you know, in a lot of ways is wrapped up by the end, but still setting up what we're going to get for the conclusion. So uh, I very much enjoyed this. If I have to give it a rating, that's, that's a tough one, again, because it's part of a larger story. But as far as itself goes... I I have to say I really enjoyed this one. I'd have to give it probably four and a half cloaked but still trackable and beam ontoable phantom wing ships. Uh, that half a ship, you know, maybe not doing so well, but uh, still pretty cool. No worries. We're still flying half a ship. Uh, that's a different Star franchise. Bruce, what, what's your rating? <laughs> I really like the book too. I think... I like it just as much as the first book. I don't think I like it any more or less. I think about, I really like the first and I really like the second. They really work well together. And I really, really like saying really on this. But I would say that. Like really? really? Like totally. Like really? Really, really. So <laughs> I would give this, um, I would say that I'll give it, Six days out of seven days of raiding an Orion camp. Ooh, wow. Goodness, that's a lot of camp raiding. I'm right there with you guys. This is a fantastic continuation of the story. There's no dip in quality to the story. I really enjoyed this one. I had a lot of fun with it. I liked where we're going. I cannot wait to see how it all kind of unfurls (laughs) as we wrap up this series and what, you know, the alpha beta quadrants are going to look like once this is all over so to me this is four and a half out of five orion yet breen agents undercover so good stuff (laughs) again that that half a breen agent that's a little scary thought but (laughs) cool (laughs) well i think we're all pretty uh Agreed. This was a great second entry. Uh, we didn't really talk about that twist at the end that, that Matthew, you brought up right there at the end with, with the entrance of the Breen agent, I thought, ended this book on a really cool note. Uh, and I'm really excited for the next one. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking that too. I like how this book ended, uh, especially with Cross. And uh, that's all I'll say about that because I think this, the events of the end of the book obviously are setting up what we'll see in the third and final book of this trilogy. This is this is great stuff. It's going to be fantastic getting to the end. I'm so glad we're getting to talk about this. Thank you so much to the associate producers, uh, Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatella, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau. Really appreciate that you guys support the network like you do, supporting Literary Tricks specifically. Now, just like them, you can go to patreon.com and make sure that all of the shows keep coming to you each and every week. That's patreon.com slash trekfm. 
every little bit helps to make sure that every single show here in the network comes to you commercial-free and with just as much fun as possible. Uh, we had a blast this week talking about this, so yeah, make sure that you become part of the team. And uh, it really does. It I, Honestly, it doesn't matter how much a month, but every little bit does make a big difference to us. Now, Dan, uh, when you're not trying to find a way onto a cloaked ship that has this special thing, I, it's just too complicated. Where can we find you? <laughs> I'd, I'd get into the details, but yeah, honestly, uh, I only have 140 characters because I'm on Twitter at uh, at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. Uh, you can find me on my website, treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, and of course, on the Babel Conference, our listeners-only group on Facebook. Uh, Bruce, when you're not undertaking a daring mission in a brave attempt to get a Klingon Emperor into Stovokor, where can we find you? Ah, uh, thank you. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can also find me as a producer and sometimes host, sometimes, just not all the time, uh, talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And uh, so check out that podcast if you like Star Wars. And we also have Star Wars Tonight going on, which Matt has also been a guest on a couple of times, maybe even more. We never know. So Matt, when you're not impersonating yourself as a high priestess to the unsung, where can people find you? Uh, well, I, I've always uh, wanted to see what it would like to be a woman for a day, so I guess making that happen. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, talking about Deep Space Nine, and of course, doing the general geek show here on Trek FM, the 602 Club, a blast talking about all the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek. And make sure you also check out Star Wars 602 Club Collection, the best place to get every single Star Wars episode that we do in one place there on iTunes. Make sure you check out both of those feeds. And if you're like me, and you probably are, you can't get enough of Star Wars, check out Aggressive Negotiations that I do with John Mills where we talk about something fun in Star Wars each and every week. You can find that on thenerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, Live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.